the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You're listening to the the Georgine Rice Rice Show podcast. podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. About seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with David Bentham. He is the... uh, the twin of his brother, Jason, they're co-authors of Bold and Broken, Becoming the Bridge Between Heaven and Earth. Uh, these are real estate moguls whose story became public when uh, HGDV uh, uh, canceled a program that the two of them were slated to host. We'll talk with him about this new book, Bold and Broken, when he joins us later this hour. Then in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jessica Anderson. She's the vice president of Heritage Action for America with a facts on H.R. 1, which federalizes and micromanages the election process administered by the states uh, that will likely be voted on in the House on Friday. So we'll explain what this whole thing is all about. Well, today, of course, is Ash Wednesday. And for those who didn't grow up in that tradition, Ash Wednesday is the first day of Lent, the official name of the Day of Ashes, so-called because of the practices of rubbing ash on one's forehead in the uh, sign of the cross. Well, since it's exactly 40 days, if you exclude the Sundays before Easter Sunday, it will always fall on a Wednesday. There can't be an Ash Thursday, for example, or an Ash Monday. The Bible never mentions Ash Wednesday, for that matter. It never mentions Lent. Well, Lent is intended to be a time of self-denial, moderation, fasting, and the forsaking of sinful activities and habits. Ash Wednesday commences um, this period of spiritual discipline. And um, Ash Wednesday and Lent are observed by the Catholics, some Protestant denominations. The Eastern Orthodox Church has a version. They don't observe Ash Wednesday, but instead they start Lent on Clean Monday. And while the Bible doesn't mention Ash Wednesday, it does um, record accounts of people in the Old Testament using dust and ashes as symbols of repentance or mourning. We'll find that in Samuel, Second Samuel, Esther, Job, Daniel. The modern tradition of rubbing a cross on a person's forehead supposedly identifies that person with Jesus Christ. Well, should a Christian observe Ash Wednesday? That's a question that each individual has to ask and answer for himself. Since the Bible nowhere explicitly commands or condemns this practice, Christians are at liberty to prayerfully decide whether or not to observe Ash Wednesday and how. If a Christian does decide to observe the occasion, that or Lent, it's important to have a biblical perspective. Jesus warned us against making a show of our fasting, saying that when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put on your... um, Put oil on your face and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to uh, to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is in who is unseen. That's in Matthew, the sixth chapter. So we must not allow spiritual discipline to become spiritual pride if you are engaged in the practice. It's a good thing to repent of sinful activities, but that's something, of course, Christians should do every day, not just during Lent. And it's a good thing to clearly identify oneself as a Christian. But again, that should be an everyday identification. And it's good to remember that no ritual can make one's heart right with God. But to set aside time to focus in prayer uh, and fasting 
is always a good thing as well. So just keep that in mind. This Ash Wednesday and uh, Lent that will follow culminating in Easter Sunday. Well, taking a look at some of the day's headlines, North Korea is rebuilding a rocket launch site, it appears. They're restoring a rocket launch site it had dismantled as part of its disarmament pledge last year, just a week after the nuclear summit between Kim Jong-un and President Trump ended without an agreement, reports are saying uh, today. New satellite images show that efforts to rebuild some structures at the Tongchang relaunch site uh, started between the 16th of February and the 2nd of March. The Associated Press reported citing 38 North, a website specializing in North Korean studies. South Korea's Yong Ang Ilbo newspaper reported uh, today that the country's spy service gave an assessment of the North's launch site to lawmakers in a private briefing yesterday. And on the heels of an expanded investigation of President Trump brought by House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler, some critics warn that Democrats may be overstepping their boundaries. One of those leading critics is famed attorney Alan Dershowitz, who warns that House Democrats may have gone too far and could face lawsuits for allegedly abusing their oversight powers. A balance has to be struck with the legitimate function of Congress to investigate Dershowitz, a Democrat who voted for Hillary Clinton, said on Hannity. The framers didn't intend for Congress to become another prosecutorial branch, yet another investigative branch. They're supposed to pass laws, so it seems to me these investigations look like they're going too far. Meanwhile, one congresswoman, freshman Democratic congresswoman Rashida Talab, she's announced uh, that she will, in fact, file articles of impeachment against the president this month. This month, rather, she appeared to clash with party leadership after joining protesters to say she's introducing a resolution this month urging the Judiciary Committee to move forward with impeachment proceedings against President Trump. And House Democrats could delay consideration of a resolution condemning anti-Semitism in the wake of controversial comments made by freshman Representative Ilhan Omar, Democrat out of Minnesota, the senior source uh, announced. There is internal consternation among Democrats about the text of the resolution and whether Omar will be mentioned by name. The current version does not mention her. The latest text circulated in the House does not mention her. <clears throat> Excuse me. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer condemned Omar's latest remarks on Israel as wrong and hurtful. House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Elliot Engel, the Democrat from New York, said he was not poised to punish her. The fight uh, could jeopardize bringing up the measure this week because there's a risk it might not pass. Lawmakers had planned to present it on Wednesday. And more than 76,000 people tried to cross the U.S.-Mexico border in February, a remarkable leap that more than doubles the number of border apprehensions during the same period of uh, that last year and is also the highest number of any February in the past 12 years, according to officials. The system is well beyond capacity and remains at breaking point. U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Kevin McLean told reporters on Tuesday as the agency released the record numbers. Bloomberg says no to 2020 and an update on Clinton not running. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg announced Tuesday he will not run for president in 2020, while also bashing President Trump in an op-ed and pledging, uh, pledging rather to ramp up efforts to solve national issues. I've never made any secret of my belief that Donald Trump is a threat to our country. Bloomberg opened his piece, which was published on Bloomberg.com. He believes um, the president could or that he could beat President Trump in the general election, but acknowledged he would have the had difficulty in the crowded Democratic primary. Meanwhile, remember when Hillary Clinton made headlines on Monday when she uh, uh, told a local New York news channel that she should not run for president in 2020? Uh, There's an update. Late Tuesday, Maggie Haberman, a political reporter for The New York Times, tweeted that she spoke with a person closer to the uh, 
former Secretary of State. The unnamed source said Clinton was not trying to be emphatic and close the door on running with a comment and was apparently surprised at the reaction. So stay tuned. There doesn't appear to be uh, many people now who any longer think um, Mr. Mueller will come up with some kind of conspiracy theory related to collusion by the Trump campaign with the Russians. So the search is on for something else uh, at this time. Uh, The Democrats may try to figure out some kind of obstruction of justice charge, but it appears that they're moving away from collusion. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll continue to wind our way through a few more headlines. Also, we'll be talking with David Bentham, co-author of Bold and Broken, Becoming the Bridge Between Heaven and Earth. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Donald Trump's former lawyer returned to Capitol Hill for a fourth day of testimony as Democrats pursue a flurry of investigations into the president's White House business and presidential campaign. Though Michael Cohen told Congress last week that he had never asked for nor would accept a pardon from Trump, a lawyer for court uh, for Cohen, however, expressed interest uh, to the Trump legal team in a possible pardon for his client in the aftermath of the raid last April on Cohen's hotel room, home and office. Apparently in this closed door meeting today, Cohen was uh, supposed to have presented some documents he referenced in his public testimony. The Senate voted on Tuesday to confirm a 37-year-old Washington lawyer whose nomination for a lifetime appointment on a federal appeals court drew vociferous opposition from LGBTQ and civil rights groups. Allison Rushing was confirmed to the U.S. Courts of Appeal for the Fourth Circuit by by a vote that split down party lines. All 53 Republicans voted for her, while the rest of the Senate voted against her, with the exception of three abstentions. And the federal government recorded a budget surplus in January, but so far this budget year, the total deficit is 77% higher than the same period a year ago. The higher deficit reflected greater spending in areas such as Social Security, defense, and interest payments on the national debt. Individual income taxes withheld from paychecks totaled $818 billion for the October through January period, down 3% from the same period last year. Corporate income taxes totaled $73 billion over the four-month period, down 23%. Revenue, however, is up um, in uh, tariffs, border taxes collected on imports, which totaled $25 billion in the October-January period, up 91% from the same period a year ago. And reports surfaced last week that advisors to the administration are calling for the U.S. to embrace China-style nationalization as our path to 5G. The Federal Commission a communication commission's Brendan Carr writes in the National Review, that's like looking to Cuba as inspiration for reforming the U.S. health care system. Enough said. And on this day in 1964, heavyweight boxing champion Cassius Clay officially changes his name to Muhammad Ali. And on this day in 1912, Oreo sandwich cookies are introduced by the National Biscuit Company. Mmm. And on this day in 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court in Dred Scott versus Sanford rules 7-2 to two that Scott, a slave, is not an American citizen and therefore cannot sue for his freedom in federal court. A very discouraging development in our nation's history from my vantage point. Well, Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen issued a dire assessment today of the migration crisis on the southern border, telling a House committee that illegal immigration is spiraling out of control and predicting that crisis will get even worse in the coming months. And in a startling revelation, she said Customs and Border Protection is on track to apprehend almost one million illegal immigrants at the border this year. In February, we saw a 30 percent jump over the previous month with agents apprehending or encountering nearly 75,000 
Nielsen told the House Committee on Homeland Security this is an 80 percent increase over the same time last year. And I can report today that CBP is forecasting the problem will get even worse this spring as the weather warms up. We want to strengthen legal immigration and welcome more individuals through the merit-based system that enhances our economic vitality and the vibrancy of our diverse nation. We also will continue to uphold our humanitarian ideals, she said. But illegal immigration is simply spiraling out of control and threatening public safety and national security. Well, Nielsen... Uh, it's testimony. It came a day after the Trump administration released figures showing that more than 2,000 migrants are apprehended every day, a total of 268,000 since the beginning of the fiscal year. The Department of Homeland Security uh, reports that the Border Patrol is apprehending illegal immigrants at the highest rate since 2007. We face a crisis, a real, serious and sustained crisis at our borders. We do not have operational control. We have tens of thousands of illegal aliens arriving at our doorstep every month. We have drugs, criminals, violence spilling into our country every week, she said. Nielsen raised concerns not only about the sheer number of crossings, but the specific rise in families and unaccompanied children, and said enough fentanyl had come across our border to kill every living American twice over. Figures released by Department of Homeland Security on Tuesday said that apprehensions of family unit aliens and unaccompanied children surged by 338 percent and 54 percent respectively. She predicted disaster if migrant flows escalate. Our capacity is already severely strained but these increases will overwhelm the system entirely. This is not a manufactured crisis. This is truly an emergency, she said. Well, the testimony comes as the president pursues his uh, declaration of a national emergency on the border. He declared such an emergency last month after Congress passed a spending bill authorizing $1.4 billion for barriers on the border, well short of the $5.7 billion that the president demanded. Now, the solution will certainly involve more than a barrier at the border, but will include it. Meanwhile, Thomas Gallatin writes this. There are a record number of families at the border, which is at a breaking point, warns President Donald Trump. Oh, wait. Actually, those were recent headlines from The Washington Post and The New York Times. In fact, The Times further reports more than 76,000 migrants crossed the border without authorization in February alone. An 11-year high, rather, and a jump from the 58,000 aliens who illegally illegally crossed in January. Turns out this manufactured crisis, in quotes, is looking an awful lot like an actual crisis. The truth is the facts support the president's argument, whether or not you agree with his solution. There is a humanitarian and security crisis on our southern border that requires urgent actions. On Tuesday, the White House released the fact sheet, as I mentioned. Many of these migrants making the trek through Central America and Mexico are suffering Horrifying violence, including sexual assault. Doctors Without Borders estimates that one-third of women are sexually abused on the journey. Criminals are exploiting the situation like never before, with 266,000 with criminal records coming into the country. Many charged with violent crimes, arrested over the last two years alone, and the um, metastatic growth of MS-13 is alarming. Furthermore, much has been made about these migrants seeking asylum due to soaring crime rates in their Central American home countries, but the data suggests that the crime rates in Central America have little to do with why these migrants are the border. The biggest reason is economic. They can make 10 times the pay here in the United States while also taking advantage of welfare provisions such as free education and health care. From the respect perspective of a migrant, why wouldn't um, uh, you come? And he goes on in his uh, column in the Patriot Post, there is a border crisis left media finally admits. And former CIA director John Brennan said that not knowing He would not be surprised if indictments produced by special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation were delivered this Friday. 
In an interview on Tuesday night on NSNBC's uh, Lawrence O'Donnell, Brennan said if a Trump family member is indicted, that would signal the end of Mueller's investigation because Trump would probably fire him. I wouldn't um, be surprised if, for example, this week on Friday, not knowing anything about it. Now, here's the key, not knowing anything about it. So why are you even speculating? One might wonder. But Friday is the day the grand jury indictments come down. And also this Friday is better than next Friday because next Friday is the 15th of March, which is the Ides of March, Brennan said. And I don't think uh, Robert Mueller will want to have that dramatic flair of the Ides of March when he is going to be delivering what I think is going to be Um, are his indictments, the final indictments, as well as report. Now, the headline read, Brennan predicts Mueller report, more indictments on Friday. I don't have inside knowledge, so I'm not even sure why he was being interviewed or why he made the statement, but there you have it. I predict it's coming down on the 20th of March. I know about as much as Brennan on that subject. Well, the U.S. posted its widest monthly trade gap since 2008 in December, and a record annual deficit in goods as sturdy... Uh, Economic growth underpinned higher spending by American consumers and businesses. The international trade deficit in goods and services widened 19 percent in December from the prior month to a seasonally adjusted fifty nine point eight billion dollars. The Commerce Department said on Wednesday, economists surveyed the Wall Street Journal had expected fifty seven point three billion dollar gap. But it was 59.8. The shortfall grew last year despite the president's aim to reduce it. Over the course of 2018, Mr. Trump imposed tariffs on a range of goods that the United States imports from our country, uh, particularly um, or or should say from other countries, particularly China, in hopes of giving American producers a competitive edge. He publicly lambasted companies that outsourced jobs, renegotiated pacts with major U.S. trade partners like Mexico, Canada, South Korea, and rankled longtime European allies by deeming their steel and aluminum exports a threat to national security. Still, the trade gap swelled 12 percent from 2017 to $621 billion, excluding services that the U.S. sells to foreigners such as tourism, intellectual property and banking. The deficit grew 10 percent to $891.3 billion, the largest level on record. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with one of a pair of twins. David and Jason Benham are the authors of Bold and Broken. He'll join us in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 38 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'd like to make a confession. Scheduled a guest, supposed to be on now in the next two segments. Can't get a hold of the guest. Guest was supposed to call us, guest didn't call. Now I've got two segments. Two segments I'd prepared to do something else in, and now I got nothing. So the following, until the top of the hour, are my random thoughts on a number of things I haven't really prepared to talk about. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The level of frustration right now is relatively high. But when you put this in the broader context of what's going on in the world, it's not that big a deal. So having said that, let's move forward. By the way, about 38 minutes after four o'clock, still snowing here in the uh, Clackamas area. None of it sticking, as we heard the uh, report earlier. None of it sticking to the ground, a bit wet. I don't know if the temperature is going to drop and create any uh, slippery spots, but kind of lovely looking out, seeing the snow, the washing away of the day. Well, I had uh, uh, spoken with Anna Quintana. She works with the Heritage Foundation. She's a senior policy analyst for Latin America. And her associate, James Carafano, who's the vice president for national security and foreign policy, 
Uh, they responded earlier this week, and we had spoken earlier this week on the White House's um, enforcement of Cuba sanctions. Now, I was not aware of this brief window that's been opened, uh, but was prepared to talk about it with them. Um, the Trump administration, and this was, um, let's see, what day was this? It was uh, <clears throat> back on the, the 5th. This was yesterday. The Trump administration has taken an historic step, and they're implementing Cuba sanctions. Now, I'll explain in a minute why that's important, but U.S. citizens can now sue Cuban regime companies for trafficking in stolen American property. Now, this is a very brief window. For the next 30 days, Americans can bring legal action against 205 companies that are owned and operated by the Cuban military, intelligence, and security services. Now, they're not guaranteeing that you're going to see any returns on this um, this effort, but nonetheless, you can bring legal action, and there might be some incentive for the Cuban government to respond in some way. Anyway, the, the actions are in response to the Cuban regime's continued human rights abuses and the destabilization of Venezuela. They're playing a role in allowing Venezuela to continue to move as they have. Well, nearly 6,000 Americans and U.S. entities had their property and assets worth an estimated value of nearly $8 billion seized during Fidel Castro's revolution. Now, some of you might remember that in real time. Others of you may have read about it and probably more have no clue at all. Anyway, the um, regime's uh, confiscation of Cuban-American assets is believed to be even higher. So $8 billion among um, U.S. entities or Americans and U.S. entities, even higher for Cuban-American assets um, that were seized. Well, the Trump administration has dealt a blow to Cuba's police state that empowers and protects Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro. Now, Havana aided Maduro's destruction of Venezuela and should be held accountable, the administration reasons. Well, since the Cuban sanctions were codified into law in 1996, U.S. administrations have refused to implement that component of the law. So the, the law has been in place since 96. It's not until 2019 that the president says we're going to implement those laws. Well, the Trump administration took an encouraging step in allowing Americans to seek justice for their stolen property. It also reinforces the U.S. efforts in Venezuela. So it's kind of an interesting uh, effort to indirectly address what's underpinning Venezuela in, their, um, in the destruction of that country's economy and its current leadership. Also, economist Thomas Sowell, one of my favorite economists of all time, has expressed himself on mounting concern. I know Clark looks at me like, who has a favorite economist? Well, Thomas Sowell has been my favorite economist of all time. I do have one. <laughs> I know it's absurd, but it's true. Uh, that's been the, tr- the case for many, many years. Anyway, uh, he points out that the surprising resurgence of socialism is putting America's future at risk. Um, I do have a great fear that in the long run we may not um, make it, he told uh, David Assam on Cavuto Coast to Coast on Tuesday. He's putting the onus on the education system and the media for encouraging people to test ideas against facts. I love the way he puts that. Testing ideas against facts. History is not relevant. What we've seen already is not meaningful. Socialism, he says, is a wonderful sounding idea. It's only as a reality that it's disastrous. Well, at one time, Sowell described himself as a Marxist. But once he realized the truth, he changed his mind. Before I was a Marxist, I was an empiricist and I stayed an empiricist. And with the passing years, simply as I looked into more and more things, I saw the difference between reality and the rhetoric. He said, unfortunately, so many people today, including the uh, in the leading universities, don't pay much attention to evidence. Well, Sowell said that he hopes that the facts about socialism sink in before the policies are presented in the United States. States. 
Of course, it's a bit late. They've already been presented, but certainly not to the degree that we're seeing now uh, as they're being proposed. He went on to say, when we see uh, people striving in Venezuela and fleeing in the neighboring countries and realize that this is a country that once had the world's largest oil reserves, you realize that that's... Uh, that they've ruined a really good prospect with ideas that sounded good but didn't turn out well, he said. When asked about freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is a self-described democratic socialist, and whether she will continue to rise in popularity, he uh, replied, it depends. If they go by rhetoric, she's a rising star. But again, as he uh, uh, put it so well, it's... um, uh, He wanted to encourage people to test ideas against facts. Whether or not that happens is the uh, <clears throat> is the big question. Well, on a recent Sunday evening in New Haven, Connecticut, writes uh, Aaron Haviland, uh, a visiting priest gave a homily about the importance of Christian love. The gospel reading was Luke six twenty seven. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now this is an impossible. Commandment apart from the work of Christ in the heart of the believer, the work of the Holy Spirit. This is impossible. And yet we are called to do it in partnership uh, with the God we serve. Anyway, in an age, he writes, of political tribalism and social media, the priest reminded us that it's all too tempting to give in to the temptation of striking back at your enemies. But the duty of a Christian is to refrain from that temptation, to pray for your enemies, and to ultimately attempt to forgive. Well, as a stereotypical, and let me just make one quick comment. As an African-American growing up in a predominantly white community where we were not oftentimes welcome, um, the example of my parents demonstrated to me that it is in Christ all things are possible, seeing how they managed to navigate at a time when it was much more challenging than it is today. Uh, my parents demonstrated that it is possible and that you can do so in a way that is comely and honors Christ. So I am so grateful for my mom and dad and other members of my extended family who lived out their profession of faith in a way that has forever marked me as a follower of Christ. Anyway, uh, back to Aaron Haviland. He writes, as a stereotypical Catholic, I don't usually quote scripture, but those words resonated with me that evening because they came at an appropriate time. When we come back from our break, I'll tell you what that appropriate time was for this Yale student Um, Yale Law School student. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Wednesday afternoon. Now, all things uh, being equal in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jessica Anderson. I'm not sure how all things being equal and my announcing the guest at 5 o'clock, how that relates, but it filled a minute or two. Anyway, Jessica Anderson is the Vice President of Heritage Action for America. We're going to talk about House Resolution 1, which federalizes and micromanages the election process administered by the states. And uh, rather interesting, there's a vote expected on Friday, although it's quite possible that between now and then, this whole thing is going to fracture at least as one solid document. But we'll tell you about that in the 5 o'clock hour, <laughs> I think. I hope. We'll see. Uh, well, I was uh, talking about a um, Christian, a constitutionalist at Yale Law School, and he wrote a column. His name is Aaron Haviland. He, he wrote, I thought I could be a Christian and constitutionalist at Yale Law School. I was wrong. He wrote about uh, being in New Haven, Connecticut. A visiting priest came and quoted from the scripture in Luke chapter 6 about how we are to respond when we are offended, oppressed, or opposed. 
Um, And he goes on and writes, I am a third-year student at Yale Law School. Before law school, I attended the Naval Academy and the University of Cambridge. Pretty impressive guy. And I served in the Marine Corps, by the way, he writes. I'm also a member of my school's Federalist Society chapter. I write in my personal capacity, not on behalf of any organization. Earlier that Sunday morning, my friends and I sent out a school-wide email announcement about a guest speaker, even for the upcoming week event, a lawyer from Alliance Defending Freedom, the Christian legal group that's won numerous First Amendment cases at the Supreme Court, would be discussing Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Given that ADF had been smeared as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, we expected some controversy. But what we got was over the top, even by Yale standards. The first um, condemnation was from outlaws, the law school's LGBTQ group. They attacked the Federalist Society for inviting ADF to campus and called for a boycott of the event. Over the next 24 hours, almost every student group jumped onto the bandwagon and joined the boycott. The emails were veritable alphabet soup of identity politics, including the Asian Pacific American Law Student Association, the Black Law Student Association, the Southern Asian Law Students Association, the, La- the Latinx uh, law Student Association, the Muslim Law Student Association, Middle Eastern and North African Law, Stu- law Students Association, the Jewish Law Students Association. Each one has a uh, moniker. Uh, the Native American Law Student Association said ADF employees were not welcome on their ancestral lands. The Yale Law Women, Yale Law Student Alliance for Reproductive Justice, and the Women of Color Collective joined, as did the American Constitution Society, the Yale Law Democrats, and the First Generation Professionals. How do they have time to study, one wonders. Well, in addition to the boycott, some students said people who supported ADF's position uh, should no longer be admitted to the law school. One student emailed a list of the Federalist Society board members publicly available information, by the way, so students would know whom to thank for the event. And that's in quotes. Uh, The event took place two days later. Around 30 people attended. The boycotters decorated the front door with rainbow posters, most likely uh, stuck to protests and support groups in other rooms. The one disruption occurred near the end of the event when three students walked in, rifled through empty pizza boxes and left with a couple leftovers. On their way out, one of the protesters blew us a kiss and gave us, well, one of the single-fingered salutes. Compared to the undergraduate events that often make the news, our campus controversy was relatively tame, but it still left scars. The amount of vitriol and cyberbullying that came uh, their way brought a couple of my classmates to tears. Some didn't feel safe on campus. Those of us in our third year of study continued to count down the days of grad- till graduation. This was not our first experience with campus unrest at Yale. Last year, we were embroiled in the controversy over the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, a distinguished alum of Yale Law School to the Supreme Court. Over the summer, one quarter of my classmates signed a petition in which they asserted that people will die if Kavanaugh was confirmed to the court. Days before Dr. Christine Blasey Ford hearings, hundreds of students and some faculty members dressed in black and staged to sit in at the school's main hallway. Most classes were canceled, lunch was provided, and traffic was redirected around the protesters. The walls were decorated with posters saying, hashtag, I believe Christine Blasey Ford and I still believe in Anita Hill. I came to Yale Law School feeling optimistic and grateful for the opportunity. I knew uh, that I would be in the intellectual minority, but I hoped that I could reasonably disagree with and learn from my peers. A lot of smart people come to this school, I thought to myself. Although we met different political or, or held different political beliefs, we probably shared a common passion for the rule of law. I was wrong, and now I am deeply disappointed. And he uh, concludes, the anti-Kavanaugh protests were a disgrace. Atticus Finch is supposed 
uh, to be the role model for our profession. But these people turned their backs on his example. Law students and professionals alike willfully abandoned the presumption of innocence, the core principle of our legal system, simply because they didn't like the jurisprudence of the next Supreme Court justice. Tensions decreased slightly after Kavanaugh was confirmed, but they never went away. Every email announced the Federalist Society sent out met a snarky, vitriolic response by progressive students. Members of the first-year class were routinely bullied by their peers. In one case, a student searched through the LinkedIn profile of a conservative classmate, saw the conservative had a connection to ADF, and shared that information with the entire class. Others then demanded a list of all law students who had connections with ADF. This harassment has become almost routine and takes place with a full knowledge of the school administration. Occasionally, the administration steps in and releases a statement about the importance of civility and community, yet the threats and intimidation persist and the perpetrators feel no consequence. Law school is supposed to be a place for serious thinkers, and you would think that the number one law school in the country should be a cut above the rest, but too often the adults are nowhere to be found. All this gets back to the topic of forgiveness. I will graduate in three months, and I do not want to carry this bitterness with me when I go. It helps that I truly have no regrets about attending Yale. I have been afforded tremendous professional opportunities that would have been unavailable anywhere else. I made a close uh, group of friends whom I trust. We share a bond born out of three years of shared adversity and frustration. Finally, I've been privileged to study under professors I genuinely respect and admire because of their commitment to intellectual freedom and civil disagreement. But then I walk back to campus for a class and see a protest sign, or I open another email smearing the Federalist Society. Then I feel viscerally angry about what this school has put my friends and me through. It will take a while to finally let go of this anger, and I probably need to put some distance between me and the school. For now, I will try to stick to my studies, support my friends, and count down the days to graduation. Again, Aaron Haviland writing about uh, his miscalculation, the headline, I thought I could be a Christian and, and constitutionalist at Yale Law School. I was wrong. And this following a um, a lecture, a, a visiting homily from a priest, uh, quoting Luke 627, which I think bears repeating. But I say to you that, uh, that, listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And it goes on. From there, a very difficult, if not impossible, uh, requirement, and yet possible through Christ who gives strength. Well, Facebook is adding a new feature for um, memorialized accounts, which will allow users to leave messages in a tributes section that's separate from the timeline of the account. The social media giant is describing the new tributes section as a space on um, memorialized profiles where friends and family can share memories of a loved one. Depending on the privacy settings of the memorialized account, Facebook friends can still write on the wall of, uh, of its timeline or comment on any posts the account holder made before they died. So I guess you have to assume, first of all, that someday I will, have, I will be dead, and this is a way for people who want to say something to do so. Facebook's new concept means that if a memorialized account has a, a tributes section, then any post made after the day the account was memorialized will be placed in a new section, this new section. Facebook users have the option of uh, having designated legacy contacts uh, who can manage their accounts after they die. You know, as far as I'm concerned, once I'm done, I'm not really thinking about Facebook. I mean, it might be nice for people to express, ah, she was a real jerk, I didn't really like her, or whatever they want to say, but Facebook, it, from my perspective, will matter little. And my guess is, you know, 
in a month or two, few years, decades from now when I actually pass away, I'm not sure anybody will still be on Facebook. So while this is a I suppose it's a thoughtful approach to providing a means for people to communicate about loved ones who have uh, gone on into eternity. I really don't care. Well, there you have it. Well, there's so much more that could be said, um, but I'm going to have to save that for another day. We do have news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. And yes, I'm almost certain that Jessica Anderson, the vice president of Heritage Action for America, will be my guest. We will be talking about House Resolution 1, uh, which federalizes and micromanages the election process. So stick with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Now, my guess is most of us are unfamiliar with House Resolution 1. It's the For the People Act of 2019, and it federalizes and micromanages the election process that's currently administered by the states. It imposes unconstitutional mandates on the states. It reverses the decentralization of America's election process. And the bill interferes with the ability of states and the citizens in those states to determine the qualifications for voters, to ensure the accuracy of voter registration rolls, uh, secure the integrity of elections, and much, much more. Well, here to bring us up to speed is Jessica Anderson. She is the vice president of Heritage Action for America with a fax on House Resolution 1. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm guessing that many, if not most of our listeners, are unfamiliar with House Resolution 1. They might be more familiar with the name, the For the People Act of 2019. Let's start with what it's um, purported to try to accomplish on behalf of the American people. Well, it's it's good that you point out the title, because the title itself is incredibly misleading. Mm -hmm. It it is is trying to fool the American people, because what you've just described is a long list of unconstitutional and ill-advised policy mandates that the liberal left part of the Democratic Party are trying to uh, infuse and, frankly, ultimately hijack the American, um, our American election process. So what's in it? They think this is a list of reforms. We see this as um, efforts to thwart the First Amendment, efforts to thwart the sanctity of our election process, and it covers everything from voter registration rules to uh, election and campaign finance to lobbying, judicial ethics. It is a long bill, 600-plus pages, um, and it's H.R. 1, which means it's the number one priority of the new Democrat House majority led by Nancy Pelosi. Now, much like the Green New Deal, this is a resolution. What does that mean in terms of uh, establishing law or simply stating these are our priorities? Well, this this will actually have an up and down vote. So the House Rules Committee uh, met last night to set up the rule for this vote. The House will vote on this bill on Friday morning, we anticipate. All Democrat members of the House have co-sponsored the legislation, which is usually a, a, a fair signal that they're likely to vote for it. But what's been very interesting is what's happened in the last 24 hours, which is that the liberal ACLU has actually come out against major portions of the bill, which I think will begin to fracture some Democrats to actually vote against this because they're concerned about losing 
the support of ACLU, their most liberal parts of the base. So whether this will be a truly partisan voting exercise on Friday or we'll get some Democrats siding with the side of the First Amendment and election sanctity, we'll, we'll only know on Friday. But in any case, if it passes the House, it'll move to the Senate. Senator uh, uh, Leader McConnell has indicated he has no desire to bring it up. Um, but this will certainly serve as a, a benchmark for this type of law, um, and it could potentially lead to breaking up pieces of these 600 pages into individual parts, mm-hmm. or smaller that then might have a chance of moving through the Senate one day. So it's a first step. I don't think it'll be conclusive. I don't think, as it is now, we'll end up on the president's desk. If it did, he would certainly veto it. He has said so as, as much. Um, but it's an important exercise and one that all conservatives should really take seriously. As I mentioned in the introduction, what H.R. 1 does is it federalizes and micromanages the election process, and it um, it reverses the decentralization of the American election process at a time when it seems it's the most dangerous to do just that. The, the details of how they intend to do that aside, if we have people who are trying to influence the outcome of elections, it seems like um, – centralizing the process is the, the worst possible response to that potential threat. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and the way they want to do that is to legalize same-day registration, which, as we know, is, is really the bedrock for fraud uh, and chaos at the polls. You can't have accuracy. You can't properly anticipate the number of voters, ballots, precinct workers that you need to secure a safe election process. Um, it would move uh, registration lists so that they're automatically registered as soon as you get um, on welfare, as soon as you get a driver's license. Um, So you could have large numbers of ineligible voters. You could have illegal immigrants that are on welfare lists, um, potentially on these voter registration lists lists as well. So it's a... It's a hotbed, really, for fraud. Um, and a couple other things that it does that, you know, are, 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 I think, actually worth mentioning outside of the election space is we spent a lot of time talking about congressional districts and how those are drawn. Mm-hmm. Um, not, you know, there's gerrymandering. What this does is it removes the ability from the state legislatures. So, again, as a federalist, we want the states to oversee this. And instead moves them to independent commissioners that are unaccountable to voters. Um, and it will likely engage in, in those states in more partisan redistricting and more gerrymandering. So there's a lot of concern that's packed in these 600 pages that we all uh, should take very serious, despite the title of being, quote unquote, for the people. Now, many of the redundancies, the the systems that are in place in states, for example, the uh, precinct uh, system, uh, are also assaulted in this, um, this measure, this resolution, uh, so that... Um, Anybody, for example, can go to a precinct outside of their own uh, and the precinct or election officials can't really monitor uh, who's coming and going. It it just uh, again, it makes this so loose and and free that fraud Mm -hmm. is 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 almost invited um, in the process. Well, fraud is almost legalized. Well, that's absolutely right. If you have someone that can vote in one precinct and they can vote in all precincts, what's to stop them from voting multiple times? The reason we have a precinct system is to ensure that an individual votes one time and that they're registered and that they're held accountable for that vote and that they're, it's duly noted on a, on a registration list. All of that would be thrown to the wind, and you could see individuals busing from one precinct to the next, voting multiple times in any given day. 
and and that being lawful. Absolutely amazing. It expands regulation and government censorship of campaigns, political activities, speech, including online and policy related speech. So it gives, again, uh, uh, the federal government uh, greater opportunity to interfere in um, the, the, the First Amendment. Uh, it protects incumbents. It reduces the accountability of politicians to the public and so on. Yep, that's exactly right. You hit it perfectly. And so this is why we have concerns that it goes after the First Amendment. This is why we have concerns that it is is really a censorship bill. Um, It's not just an election fraud uh, bill, but it goes after those closely held First Amendment rights and providing those um, over-regulatory compliance burdens on everything from the candidate to the civic group to the union, et cetera. Now, there seems to be a blatant effort to politicize the Federal Election Commission. For example, they're reducing the numbers or proposes to reduce the number of Federal Election Commission members from six to five. That would allow a political party to dominate uh, if three commission seats um, belong to one um, party as uh, as opposed to another. So partisan enforcement activities uh, could be the result. Um, How do they explain this as being in the best interest of the American people without revealing that this has the the potential to to make um, our election process more partisan? Well, what they would say is that the effort to move from six to five allows you to break a tie, right? They would say that it, it allows you to have a, a two to two and then someone breaks the tie. But we all know the reality of how the FEC is, is built out and how individuals are commissioned to be part of the FEC, that it is a highly partisan process. So you typically have three Republicans and three Democrats. And things are either log jammed or in times when the Constitution prevails, everyone agrees, uh, which has happened and, and can happen. So by moving from six to five, it's in their minds, it's trying to say, OK, well, we need someone to break the tie. But it's a very, very callous and naive view because it really will allow the partisanship of the SEC to just be entirely exploited, which provides grave danger to what governs all of our elections space. Um, and even goes into our First Amendment and how um, organizations like nonprofits, like the organization I work at, how we interact in the public sphere and, and kind of what uh, dictates our daily actions as well. Well, there's so much more in this that our time does not permit us to go into. So I'm going to post a copy of this uh, uh, this article on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page for our listeners to read. But I thank you so much for exposing uh, the details that should alarm any American, regardless of your political stripe, about the future and integrity of elections here in the uh, the country. Jessica, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Again, Jessica Anderson is the vice president of Heritage Action for America for the facts of H.R. Uh, 1, which federalizes and micromanages the election process administered by the states in ways that I think undermine Free and fair elections undermine the First Amendment and much, much more. You can check that out on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page where we'll have a link to this piece. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as Michael Bloomberg announced that he isn't running for president in 2020, Vice President Joe Biden is moving ever closer to another presidential run, alerting his network of Wall Street supporters that he is all but certain to announce his candidacy in the next month. 
Uh, Bloomberg's decision not to run is a sign that the former New York City mayor and billionaire businessman is ceding the moderate wing of the Democratic Party to Biden. The former vice president and longtime U.S. senator from Delaware, people with uh, direct knowledge of the matter, are saying. And though Biden hasn't uh, sidestepped the question of 2020 intentions publicly, several Wall Street executives who are close to him say in private that he has indicated that barring some last-minute change, he is planning to announce his 2020 presidential intentions soon. Now, as you might recall, yesterday, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, made it clear that she had no intention of running. There seems to be some backpedaling since then. I think the expectation is that she will not run in 2020, but expects to remain an important and relevant figure in the process, but uh, we'll see what happens there as well. Meanwhile, the Washington Post's fact checker sharply critiqued former Secretary of State Clinton for her claims on Sunday concerning voter suppression in Wisconsin and Georgia in the 2016 presidential election. Clinton made several factual errors, offered questionable claims about a couple of studies, and ended up giving a misleading assertion of her loss. Salvador Riza wrote in his column, the Post gave Clinton four Pinocchios. I was the first person who ran for president without the protection of the Voting Rights Act. And I will tell you, it makes a really big difference, Clinton said on Sunday in Selma, Alabama, commemorating Bloody Sunday. And it doesn't just make a difference in Alabama and Georgia. It made a difference in Wisconsin, where the best studies that have ever been done said somewhere between 40,000 and 80,000 people were turned away from the polls because of the color of their skin, because of their age, because of whatever excuse could be made up to stop a fellow American citizen from voting. Now, that's quite a brazen statement. Wrong on multiple levels, seriously misleading and worth a cumulative for Pinocchios, the Washington Post piece concluded. Clinton also faulted the Supreme Court for voter turnout in 2016, something the Post disputed as well. Just think about it. Between 2012, the prior presidential elections, uh, where we still had the Voting Rights Act in 2016 when my name was on the ballot, there were fewer voters registered in Georgia than there had been Um, Those prior four years, Clinton told the audience. Well, the Post responded that Clinton's claim that total voter registration declined in that state from 2012 to 2016 is false. It increased. Former Republican National Committee Chairman Reince Priebus also called Clinton's comments false. Uh, The sad thing is the comments are made. Uh, And most people heard them, accepted them, and have moved on. The Washington Post responding, most people will not have read. That's the nature of truth, information, and the 21st century. Well, imagine forcing every kid to walk around holding an ad for Planned Parenthood. Well, in California, you don't have to imagine it. California State Assemblyman Jess Gabriel is doing everything he can to seal the single largest free publicity deal in the history of abortion, a Planned Parenthood phone number on every student ID, including kids at private and Christian schools. He calls it the pupil and student health bill. Huh. But critics of his AB 624 want people to know what is really Uh, behind all of this, an attack on the First Amendment. By slapping Planned Parenthood's hotline on the back of every 12 to 24-year-old's ID, California essentially would be forcing every student to join an abortion sales team. And if you think private schools are exempted, think again. Gabriel's plan doesn't just affect public middle schools, high schools and colleges, but Christian campuses too. Good luck winning the one, uh, that one in court. Parents would be uh, filing lawsuits faster than you can say compelled government speech. And, of course, it's not like Planned Parenthood needs the publicity, especially in California, where the group holds a virtual monopoly on sex education. Most kids are exposed to Planned Parenthood before they can even spell it. Thanks to Governor Jerry Brown's Healthy Youth Act, 
Um, Lena Wynn's uh, group already has a head start in, on indoctrination, which, as we all know, is her best shot at future business. Even charter schools are ordered to serve up Planned Parenthood's propaganda in California, including the controversial Get Real curriculum, a program so radically pornographic that parents across the country have packed town halls to have it removed. Now, if Gabrielle wanted to put a resource on the back of student ID, fine. But why pick a group as corrupt as Planned Parenthood, as controversial as Planned Parenthood? An organization under criminal investigation for selling baby body parts doesn't exactly scream credibility. The answer is pretty simple. Planned Parenthood forked over $4,400 for his 2018 campaign. This isn't about wellness. It's about a down payment on future contributions. Apparently, California Family Council's Greg Burt writes, Gabriel uh, doesn't see the conflict of interest in using government resources to provide free advertising to an organization that has given him an endorsement and campaign cash. Well, speaking of money, Planned Parenthood doesn't need to be on student IDs. They're in our wallets already. Remember, this is an organization that takes in more than half a billion dollars from taxpayers every year. Surely they have enough cash to... Um, get out their abortion, or their pro-abortion message without forcing schools to advertise an activity they should be discouraging. Imagine the uproar if, for example, conservatives tried to put the contact information for a crisis pregnancy center or a pregnancy resource center on the back of student IDs. Or since Gabriel uh, seems to be so intent on political plugs, how about the California Family Council? In the end, his idea isn't just outrageous, it's deadly. He's lobbying to replace the suicide hotline on the back of these kids' IDs with an organization whose number one business actually leads to the mental health issues that cause some women to take their lives. As the Family Research Council explained in its publication, Planned Parenthood is not pro-woman. A 2011 peer-reviewed synthesis on the mental health effects of abortion included a survey of 22 published studies combining data on 877,181 participants, showing that abortion increases the likelihood of depression, anxiety, and reckless behavior such as alcoholism, drug use, and sadly, suicide. Well, this California bill and the lawmaker behind it doesn't just force young people to violate their beliefs. It promotes an industry that jeopardizes these girls' health, not to mention boys who are also involved. If today's teenagers want to talk to somebody about sex, here's an idea. Call home. Until then, stop using the heavy arm of government to burden these kids free exercise. As attorney Dean uh, Broyles uh, with the National Center for Law and Policy said, the radicals in the California legislature just don't get it. We still have a First Amendment. Well, we have it. Whether or not we're following it is another matter. On a related subject, a teenager in Alabama is suing an abortion clinic for terminating the life of his unborn child against his wishes. Well, on Tuesday, an Alabama county court recognized the aborted fetus, Baby Roe, as a plaintiff in the lawsuit, making the case one of the first of its kind, his lawyer says. Ryan Man- uh, Majors, rather, is 19. He's of Madison County. He claims his girlfriend got a Medicaid, um, medicated abortion at the Alabama Women's Center for Reproductive Alternatives in Huntsville in February of 2017 when she was six weeks pregnant, according to legal documents, even though he urged her not to terminate the pregnancy. Alabama recognizes the personhood of a fetus. I hesitate to use the word, but I'm quoting So Majors is suing on behalf of the fetus and himself. Baby Rose's innocent life was taken by the profiteering of the Alabama Women's Center. And while no court will be able to bring Baby Rose back to life, we will seek the fullest extent of justice on behalf of Baby Rose and Baby Rose's father. That's a quote from attorney Brent Helms in a statement. 
He went on to say the time is ripe for consist for our consistency rather in Alabama's jurisprudence. Either we fully acknowledge the personhood of the unborn or we cherry pick which innocents we protect and which ones we trash for process uh, for profit. Rather, Madison County uh, probate court judge Frank Barger allowed majors to name his aborted child as a co-plaintiff in this case against Alabama Women's Center a move that came just four months after the passage of an amendment that gave fetuses personhood or the same legal rights as any other person under the state constitution. Helms believes the case could make it to the Supreme Court. I'm here for the men who actually want to have their baby, Majors told uh, local station. I believe every child from conception is a baby and deserves to live. But the case has alarmed pro-choice activists. No big surprise there. On Twitter... Elise Hogue, the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, called it a very scary case that is asserting women's rights third in line. Others called it unlawful and idiotic. Personhood Alabama spokesperson Hannah Ford told LifeSite News uh, with the recent abortion debates after New York and other states have uh, pushed for lifting restrictions on abortion. This case is a timely reminder that every single abortion committed is a chilling assault on a precious and innocent human life, an intolerable violation of the most basic God-given human right, the right to life. The abortion clinic has until April 1st to respond to that suit. Free markets, whether they are economic markets or the marketplace of ideas, represent American ideals. The free exchange of ideas communicates that for the most part, all are welcome to share their unique points of view until recently. Anyway, certainly American freedoms um, seem to be approaching endangered species status as big, powerful interests increasingly choose to manipulate their their platforms rather to control speech. Well, as troubling as that is in the constitutional republic we find ourselves in, it's not just the marketplace of ideas that are under attack, but the access to economic markets as well via commerce and banking. Case in point, PayPal. Now, it doesn't take a legal scholar to be concerned about the messages imparted by PayPal's CEO, Dan Schulman, in a recent Wall Street Journal interview by Peter Rudgear. In the article's title, PayPal CEO Grapples with Fringe Groups, Dan Schulman explains uh, who gets booted and why. Well, Schulman outlined the implementation of a political agenda that ultimately restricts ordinary Americans' access to banking services. Consider that in an increasingly competitive market, PayPal remains the largest online transaction processor with an estimated 2018 payment volume of $581 billion. PayPal leads its industry and its policies on access matters. And while regulators don't present, uh, cla- don't presently rather classify it as a bank, PayPal must comply with specific statutes and regulations that govern the financial industry. For example, PayPal has to work within an anti-terrorism and money laundering statute. Uh, no reasonable person would um, object to Hamas front groups or the KKK being denied access to PayPal. Thus, the laissez-faire, wide-open transaction processing system is not possible and some policing is of users is inevitable. But it's not just terrorists that are that the company is working to exclude. The journal interview gave Mr. Schulman a platform to explain how the company sees its public political activism, focusing on PayPal's decisions, cutting off service to various websites um, like Infowars. The article says PayPal has also cut off far left groups in Atlanta, Philadelphia and Sacramento that identify as Antifa or anti-fascists. However, none of these left wing groups are identified by the PayPal CEO. 
Now, Schulman states without any sense of irony that um, probably the most important value to us is diversity and inclusion. I'll pause so that you can chuckle. And then he adds, our mission is to democratize financial access for all citizens so that managing and moving money is a right for everybody, not a privilege for the affluent. If this strikes you as a bit uh, grandiose, you're not alone. Apparently, the enormous social benefit that comes from processing consumer transactions is insufficient for PayPal's ego, which helps explain the ease with which the company shifts into social justice mode. Well, to make a long story short, and I've discussed it earlier this week as well, when asked what outside groups are most helpful with um, in terms of informing PayPal's decisions, Shuleman volunteers that the Southern Poverty Law Center has brought us things, he adds. We don't always agree, though this shocking admission is not followed up but with meaningful transparency of how difference, uh, differences are resolved. Well, a great deal has happened since 2012 when an act of domestic terrorism took place at the Family Research Council. The shooter had been in, um, imbibing the Southern Poverty Law Center's animus toward pro-marriage Christian groups and decided to act violently, intending to kill as many as possible. Well, as you might recall... Uh, because of the uh, quick work and the vigilance of one um, security officer in the lobby of the Family Research Council, he was unsuccessful at achieving his goal. But the family, uh, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center put the Family Research Council on their list of hate groups, along with many others who do not fit that uh, profile. And PayPal, relying on the Southern Poverty Law Center, is allowing that organization to influence which mainstream conservative Christian groups Uh, are uh, fundamentally deprived of um, access through PayPal to their constituents who would otherwise support their causes. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, This news broke just uh, shortly before the program began earlier today. Jeopardy host Alex Trebek revealed in his in a YouTube video Wednesday that he has been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. Um, Trebek learned of his condition this week, he said in the video. Now, normally the prognosis for this is not very encouraging, but I'm going to fight this and I'm going to uh, keep working, he said. And with the love and support of my family and friends and with the help of uh, your prayers also, I plan to beat the uh, low survival rate statistics for this disease. Taking a bit of a lighter note, Trebek said, uh, quipped that um, uh, he'd have to recover in order to fulfill his hosting duties. Of course, he has, I think, two, three years left on his uh, contract to host uh, the program. This being uh, Ash Wednesday and Lent that follows is a reminder of our own mortality. And regardless of what plans we may or may not have made, the most important plans we must make are for our future because we are not um, immortal. Well, the Washington House has approved a measure that would remove parents' ability to claim a personal or philosophical exemption to vaccinating their school-aged children for measles. The vote comes in the midst of an outbreak that sickened some 71 people, mostly children, in the state of Washington. The chamber passed the bill on a 57-40 vote late last night, and it now heads to the Senate, which is expected to vote in the coming days on its own bill, which is broader. While the House bill removes the philosophical exemption for just the combined measles, mumps, rubella, vaccine. The Senate measure seeks to remove such exemptions for any required school vaccinations. It's not clear which measure lawmakers will ultimately move forward with if the Senate passes its measure before next week's deadline to get the policy bills voted out of the chamber of origin. And here in the um, 
a little bit closer to home in the state of Oregon, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, the Oregon legislature and victims of alleged sexual assault within the Oregon state capital have settled, uh, have reached a settlement rather, according to a release, a total of $1,121,612 will go to nine women who experienced harm during their time at the state capital. The legislature will also pay $200,000 to the Bureau's attorney's fees. Now, this comes following allegations which began with Senator Sarah Gessler of uh, Corvallis, a Democrat there, then other employees and former interns of sexual harassment against former Senator Jeff Cruz. Um, uh, Gelser's uh, complaint launched a five-month investigation uh, by the Bureau of Labor and Industries. The Bureau released a report which found the Oregon Capitol to be a hostile work environment that did little to stop sexual harassment in the workplace. Gelser is listed as one of the nine victims in the settlement, but she will not receive damages. Only her lawyer's fees will be reimbursed. In an interview uh, with the uh, Bureau, Gelser uh, described feeling marginalized by powerful Democrats in the in the state for how they reacted when she accused Cruz of um, inappropriate conduct and placing, well, inappropriate conduct. Uh, Cruz was forced to resign. Then in February, a suit was filed by two women who had uh, been interns for Cruz. He was accused of, is accused of repeatedly harassing them sexually. Top officials in the Capitol are accused of being aware of the harassment and doing nothing to stop it. It was blatant, says one of the women uh, victims of the alleged uh, harassment who's filing suit. It happened in front of other people. People make jokes about it. House Speaker Tina Kotek and Senate President uh, Peter Courtney released the following statement about the settlement. On behalf of the Oregon legislature, we sincerely apologize to the women who suffered harm during their time in the Capitol. Everyone working in or visiting the state Capitol deserves to feel safe and respected. We remain committed to improving the Capitol's workplace culture and are working hard to implement that change during the ongoing legislative session following the recommendations of the Oregon Law Commission. Well, the commissioner of the Bureau of Labor and Industries, Val Hoyle, uh, said in a written statement that this settlement ensures that the injured parties have their harms addressed. It puts in place requirements and processes that, when fully implemented, will improve the capital as a workplace and will provide appropriate support to workers who may have issues in the future. Those victims could only have had their harms addressed through a um, Bureau of Labor and Industries commissioner's complaint. I'm pleased that we were able to provide them access to justice. So taxpayer money being used to cover the misdeeds of a former member of the Oregon legislature. Well, a Woodburn man pleaded guilty yesterday to participating in a conspiracy that produced more than 10,000 fraudulent government identification cards, including driver's licenses from Oregon and more than 25 other states, U.S. Social Security cards, false immigration records, birth certificates, marriage licenses, vehicle titles, Miguel Mercias Lopez, 24, and unidentified co-conspirators worked out of a secret photo lab in Woodburn using digital cameras, computers, scanners, laminators, and a high-resolution printer to provide bogus documents that they sold and distributed here in Oregon and mailed across the country, according to Assistant U.S. Attorney Peter Sachs. The investigation continues and other arrests are anticipated. The uh, young man pled guilty to conspiracy to produce fraudulent documents and possession with intent to distribute methamphetamine before U.S. District Judge Michael Simon in Portland. He joined the conspiracy in January of 2017 after he arrived in the United States from Oaxaca, Mexico, Sachs said. He's responsible for creating at least 300 of the fraudulent documents, including permanent resident cards, social security cards, driver's licenses, according to a plea agreement. 
And lawmakers um, held hands and sang Amazing Grace as part of their final tribute to Oregon's late Secretary of State Dennis Richardson. Richardson uh, died late last month following a battle with brain cancer. He was only 69. Standing at 62, only 69 seems like an appropriate way to uh, to look at it. Hundreds are expected to pay their respects to Richardson at a state funeral uh, today. His body, which um, began actually earlier this afternoon, his body will lie in the Capitol prior to the state funeral later in the afternoon in the House of Representatives. As Secretary of State, the Republican Richardson was Oregon's top elections official and held the second highest office in the state after the governor. Democratic Governor Kate Brown um, uh, is expected to name his successor in the coming months. This will be the first state funeral since 1983. And by the way, the uh, governor has to name a Republican to fill that vacancy. I think there's about a year left, and then there will have to be an um, election to fill that, um, that seat. Well, a warning sign has been posted near Pacific City after a surfer reported that a shark bit his surfboard on Tuesday morning. That's according to Oregon State Parks. Now, I can't imagine surfing on the Oregon coast in March. It's still snowing outside here. But the surfer told Oregon State Parks officials that he was in the water around 8.30 a.m. when he saw a shark heading his direction. He pulled his legs out of the water and the shark bit his board and damaged it. The surfer, who wasn't injured, paddled to shore and reported the accident or the incident. The Tillamook County Sheriff's Office responded to the site of the uh, encounter. The warning sign has been posted and a ranger has been stationed near the beach. A popular Tillamook Weather Facebook page reported that the surfer said the shark was at least 10 feet long and that the incident took place at Cape Kawanda next to the beach at Pacific City. This is a developing story, uh, and I'm certain we'll hear more about it in the days ahead. But just uh, uh, a reminder that a warning sign has been posted near Pacific City after a surfer reported that a shark bit his surfboard Tuesday morning, according to Oregon State Parks, and that's just outside of, um, took place at Cape Kawanda next to the beach at Pacific City. All right, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. Uh, Did you get snow where you happen to be? Well, snow flurries arrived in Portland uh, this morning with reports of a light dusting in some areas and quite possibly the same tomorrow. We'll tell you more about it in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, they told us to expect some icy spots on the road, a little dusting of snow, and it's been snowing here where we are in the Clackamas area pretty much off and on throughout the day. However, the roads are quite clear, and there's a lot of moisture on the street, so unless the temperatures drop dramatically, I don't expect we'll see much um, much by way of freezing. But the high uh, today it was about 43 degrees in the metro area, with a freezing level rising to 3,000 feet. So if you happen to be 3,000 or above, you could see a little bit different. But snow flurries arrived here in the Portland metro area this morning with reports of a light dusting in some areas. Uh, They, again, are saying to expect some icy spots on the roads uh, early, but the uh, high Wednesday reaching about 43 degrees with a freezing level rising to 3,000 feet means that most of us will be just fine making our way home. The National Weather Service said there were were reports rather of a wintry mix around the area. Reports of rain, sleet, or snow, various combinations thereof around the Portland area. Might be uh, possible slick spots, especially on elevated surfaces, uh, sidewalks, on ramps, off ramps, and so on. Travel with care, the National Weather Service tweets. Another chance of early snow showers uh, is in the forecast for Thursday. I was talking with my sister earlier uh, this week about spending time maybe trimming the roses and working outside a little bit. Maybe not so much after 
uh, the weather of uh, the last couple of days and the temperatures. Another chance of early snow showers is in the forecast, as I mentioned, on Thursday. The Weather Service said there have only been 13 times in March when at least 0.1 inches of snow was recorded in the Portland International Airport. This week's cold comes on the uh, heels of a well, third coldest February on record for Portland in terms of mean temperature average. The last time Portland saw a 50-degree high was back on Groundhog Day. Um, Since February 2nd, Portland has seen all but one day with average temperatures below normal, including a record low high temperature of 36 degrees. And that was way back on February 27th. When will we see normal temperatures for this time of year? Well, they say the majority of weather outlook models have shown the extreme cold breaking in mid-March. And today, of course, is the 6th, we got a little ways to go. Normal mid-March daytime highs are usually 55, 60 degrees. So I think I'm going to hold off on doing the gardening uh, this weekend that I had planned on, which means I'll probably spend the day on Saturday in my pajamas just kind of working around the house. Sounds like a good idea to me. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with John Barry. He is the author of Jesus Economy, a biblical view of poverty, the currency of love, and a pattern of lasting change, putting things into perspective and eternal perspective as you consider the needs of others. That's coming up on tomorrow's program. Um, also, the uh, performance of Bow the Knee that has become very popular uh, here in uh, this part of the of the Pacific Northwest. We're going to talk with um, James Taylor about that and make sure you have all the important details. If you've never seen this locally produced production and you think, oh, you know, locally produced, how could good it be? Let me tell you what they produce is... Um, It's quite stunning. We're going to talk about that tomorrow and give you uh, the important details. It's a great opportunity to invite someone who may be less familiar with the Easter story uh, to see it very well performed. The costuming, the lighting, the music, everything about it is very professionally done, uh, but tells the story in a way that's very compelling. So it's a great opportunity to extend your um, resurrection, Easter, however you want to refer to the season that's coming up uh, in a way that's, uh, that's very meaningful. So... We'll be talking with him about that tomorrow. And then on Friday, of course, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news, making sure that we also cover the more serious stories that break during the day. I want to remind you of a couple of things. A Christian education might just be more in your reach than you imagine. KPDQ listeners can save up to 40% on Christian school tuition. So check out the um, uh, our listener savings season for uh, Christian school tuition. Go to listener, singular, savings, plural, listenersavings.com for more information. Cornerstone Christian, uh, Pilgrim Lutheran, uh, Western Christian, many, many others. Uh, you can enjoy up to 40% on that tuition. So check that out. And if you have a youngster who is interested in um, a leadership training for a pro-life organization that's premier in the area, they have extended their um, registration. Today being the last day to be a part of the leadership retreat Oregon Right to Life. The retreat is the 24th through the 27th of March. It's for 16 to 21 year olds. And if you're interested, today is the last day to register. Go to Oregon Right to Life for more information. All right. I want to thank uh, James Blinn for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.